0: Listening to the ACB Advocacy Update.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ACB Advocacy Update. I almost said good morning or good afternoon, but I realized that doesn't work on a podcast. So hello everybody, and welcome to ACB Advocacy Updates. This is Claire Stanley, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist here at the American Council of the Blind, and my lovely co-host.
2: Their podcasts are all times and all locations. They're like
1: omniscient and all powerful.
2: All would have been correct. Maybe semi-phenomenal, nearly cosmic.
1: Ooh, I like it.
2: This is Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Thank you to everyone listening on ACB Radio, as well as those downloading, subscribing, listening, reviewing, and liking via your favorite podcast player. And for this podcast, and only one more for the rest of the year. Thank you to Sprint T-Mobile for underwriting our podcasts for 2020.
1: That's right. So, Clark, what are we going to talk about today?
2: Well, today we decided to have a conversation about uh, a partner of ACB and of our affiliates, and it really—I thought fine. you were going
1: to say a partner in crime, but I guess they're kind of a partner in crime. <laughs>
2: Well, they're our partner when crimes against disability rights have been committed.
1: Nice, nice. Yes.
2: So we are getting to know uh, the National Disability Rights Network, or NDRN, as well as the protection and advocacy organizations throughout the country.
1: That's right. Yep. Uh, So just as a, a quick back story to that um, many of you who have called over the years and so on um, who might be experiencing any type of legal issue pertaining to your disability um, or access issues for services that you mm-hmm. have a right to you know we often will encourage you to contact your local PNA office um, they have such great knowledge, wisdom, resources, experience. And so we often will give you their email address or phone number. And so we thought, why not go to the source directly and talk to NDRN, the national office, as well as the local based PA offices. So that's kind of what spurred us on to do this episode.
2: And as folks remember, earlier this fall, we had a great conversation on digital inclusion and the kind of legal framework that's currently in place throughout the United States when it comes to uh, digital inclusion and online accessibility. And that conversation was with Rachel Weisberg. And Rachel works at Equip for Equality, which is the protection and advocacy organization in the state of Illinois.
1: That's right. Yep. I always thought Equip for Equality had one of the coolest names for their PNA office. So
2: yeah. Alliteration is always cool.
1: Alliteration is a pretty cool thing. I agree. <laughs> cool. Well, we have two guests today um, that we're gonna talk to, uh, Cyrus and Tom. I'm not gonna attempt to say either of their last names because I will get them wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, But we'll have Cyrus and then we'll have Tom. So if you guys hold on for a second, we'll be right back with our two awesome guests. Great. So we are back, everybody, and we have our first guest with us. Um, And I'm really excited to invite Cyrus to come and talk with us. Uh, Cyrus, can you introduce us? I apologize. I'm going to say your name wrong, so I'm not going to embarrass myself.
0: Yeah, no, no worries, and uh, uh, you, you are not the first, nor will really be the last person to sort of sort of butcher that. So, yeah, happy to introduce myself. Um, but before I do that, let me just you know, first off say, you know, thanks for having me on today, Claire, and I, I just want to mention that you know NDRN values the working relationship that we have with the American Council of the Blind. Um, We look forward to our uh, continued uh, collaboration. Um, My name is Cyrus and My preferred pronouns are he, him, uh, and I'm a senior public policy analyst at the National Disability Rights Network, which we refer to as NDRN for for short. And so what that means in practice is that, uh, you know, I work on the public policy team where I cover several federal policy areas and work to advance our federal policy priorities with Congress and the administration. Great. And Cyrus, what is NDRN? (laughs) Yeah, great question. Uh, happy happy to explain our, our organization. So, you know, at a base level, uh, NDRN is the nonprofit membership organization for the federally mandated protection and advocacy, advocacy systems, which we refer to as the PNAs, and the client assistance programs, which we refer to as the CAPs. And so both of those um, entities uh, serve individuals with disabilities, uh, and we're cross-disability, so we serve um, anyone with a disability. So, you know, like I said, basically, you know, NDRN serves as the membership association, uh, for those two entici- entities, and we provide a variety of services, uh, that support the PNA agencies and the CAP, and the CAP agencies.
1: Uh, so Cyrus, to my understanding, um, the is oversee, I don't know if the word grant is the right word, but over nine projects or grants, um, you obviously don't need to list all nine of them. This isn't a, a test, but can you tell us a couple of the different ones you guys work on?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so we oversee, uh, like you said, Claire, n- nine congressionally mandated programs, um, you know, all, all in statute. Um, and, you know, a, a, couple, a couple of the ones that folks might be most familiar with um, are, you know, the protection advocacy for individuals with developmental disabilities or the, the PAD program. So this serves uh, folks with, with DD mm-hmm. Um, we also oversee, uh, the protection and advocacy for individuals with mental illness or the PAMI program. So it serves people with, with mental illness. Um, then we also have the protection and advocacy for individual rights or the PAIR program, which I like to sort of think about as a catch-all and this program lives at the department of education. Uh, so if, you know, typically if you're, if you don't fit squarely into any of the other programs that we oversee, um, you could be served through, through, through PAIR, um, and you know, most of our programs are, um, you know, are uh, discretionary programs. So, so they're subject to annual appropriations. Though we have a couple mandatory programs um, as well in Social Security. So, so sort of on that theme, we we also oversee the the rep payee program. So, you know, rep payee is someone who manages uh, Social Security benefits on behalf of a beneficiary uh so so we also oversee that program, so you know i think in summary uh, you can sort of tell that we we sort of have um you know a pretty broad range of 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 services and sort of have our hands in in a bunch of different uh pots and Cyrus,
2: what are the the p or protection and advocacy um organizations
0: uh so so yes, yeah, so there they are um you know individual agencies. That, uh, you know, are primarily made up of attorneys and, and, and other advocates. Um, you know, we've got we've got one in uh, actually every state. We also have one in every uh, U.S. territory. So that, you know, that covers uh, American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, Puerto Rico, um, DC, though not a territory, but not a state, um, and then we also have a PNA um, in the Four Corners region of the Southwest, which actually serves a couple of our Native Nations down there. So, uh, you know, primarily the Hopi, Navajo, and San Juan Southern Paiute Nations. Uh, so, in total, we have actually 57 PNAs. Uh, so, sort of a unique number, um, you know. I think. Um, you know, and I, you know, I think what I alluded to earlier, you know, I think what what really distinguishes us is, you know, the PNA is each individual PNA, right, gets, gets, uh, you know, funding under one of our nine programs or all our nine programs. Um, And again, they're cross disability. So so the beauty here is, you know, if you are, you know, no matter where you live or work or, or, or regardless of your disability, you could potentially be uh, served by PNA, if you feel as though your, you know, your rights under, um, you know, applicable federal civil rights law uh, are violated, so you can just, you know, call up a PNA. You know, there's an intake, and, and they can, you know, start start working on your case.
1: The PNAs are actually near and dear to my heart because my first um, internship in law school was at the California PNA in Sacramento, and then my first fellowship out of law school was at Disability Rights DC, the DC PNA. So, yeah, some some good good memories there.
0: You were trained well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
2: <laughs> and and Cyrus, why are the the PNAS necessary?
0: Um, you said they were federally mandated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a really. I mean, I think I, I keep. I think I keep saying the word unique. I mean, I think uh, you know. I think Endeavor is unique, and I think the PNAS are unique just by the nature of our work. And, and you know, we also had a sort of uh, unique inception. Um, so sort of the catalyst for the PNA network was. Uh, Actually, back in the 70s, uh, Geraldo Rivera, who's, um, you know, I think a pretty famous um, journalist now... actually did an expose for the ABC news affiliate in New York city, in 1972. And, and what he actually did was he exposed, um, really horrific, which I think is an understatement, um, you know, abuse and neglect and, and lack of services and supports at Willowbrook, which was a, uh, a state institution <clears throat> for people with intellectual and other disabilities on Staten Island. Um, and so, you know, this broadcast, you know, when it came out, really prompted Congress to, to take action. You know, I think what they basically thought was like, you know, this is really unacceptable um, that folks are being institutionalized, and, and you know, not only they're being institutionalized, but when they're institutionalized, they're they're you know subject to horrific abuse and neglect. And so, this uh, this this prompted Congress to create the first PNA program, uh, which was PAD, which I alluded to earlier. Um, and the vehicle for that was the renewal of the, uh, the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act or the DD Act. And so, again, that, that program was meant to um, allow the PAs to provide oversight uh, for folks with um, DD, particularly in, in institutions. But, you know, over the years, though, um, as we've sort of moved towards a deinstitutionalization uh, you know paradigm and, and really mandate if you look at uh, you know look at the various laws and court cases that have been um, you know that have taken place since then uh, you know the PNA statutes have been sort of expanded uh, with the addition of you know multiple, of additional programs uh, so so you know now the PNAs devote a considerable amount of time and resources to ensuring um, full access to inclusive um, you know, inclusive educational programs, financial entitlements, health care, accessible housing, uh, transportation, uh, productive employment opportunities. But also, you know, we continue to serve sort of a core function, which is the prevention of abuse and neglect. But like I said, you know, a- as deinstitutionalization has sort of uh, been the, 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 the new paradigm through which we look at these issues, um, you know, the, the, the function of the PNA is to sort of move towards uh, doing a lot of, you know, inc- work to ensure inclusivity and, and community integration.
1: So you talked a little bit about um, kind of your role as the public policy, senior public policy analyst. Can you tell us kind of what a day in the life of Cyrus looks like at NDRN? What are some of the projects you work on, the, the topics you work on? What's your pol- uh, portfolio, so to speak?
0: Yeah, well, uh, what I'll say, a day in the life is busy, <laughs> which is <a> good.
1: <laughs> <I'm problem. sure>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is good. There is really no lack uh, of work to do, and um, you know, I think what I what I will say is that it, you know it is an honor, uh, truly. I think it's a good way to sort of characterize it. It's an honor to do this work, and and you know, I wake up every day, um, you know, really privileged to, to to work on these issues, which are uh, near and dear to my heart. But um, so let me answer this sort of at two levels. So so why don't I so um, you know, uh, I I sort of provide two two functions uh, to to the PNAs in my role at NDRN. So you know, since we're sort of a membership organization, we you know, I would think of us as offering services in two buckets. So um, most relevant to me is uh, you know, I, I, I provide the public policy services to the PNAs, uh, which is like a membership service, and so that largely consists of. Uh, you know, me trying to get increased funding for the PNAs through the annual appropriations process. Like I said, seven of our nine programs are subject to the annual appropriations process. Um, so there's that. And then the other bucket, which I'm less involved with, is is the technical assistance bucket. So NDRN um, is actually the technical assistance provider uh, for the PNAs. So we are almost always doing some sort of training at any day uh, for the PNAs on a variety of topics, um, given how broad our, 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 work is. Um, so that's sort of where I fit in like institutionally in terms of services that we provide the PNAs, uh, more specifically, um, the policy areas that I personally work on, um, which again is more, you know, representing our policy priorities to Congress and the administration while also trying to get, you know, increased funding for the PNAs. But, uh, you know, I work on um, education, uh, particularly special education. I work on criminal and juvenile justice. Uh, I work on police reform, which, uh, you know, has really ramped up uh, after the, um, you know, uh, tragic murders uh, over the summer and, you know, how those sort of highlighted the epidemic of, of police violence against people of color in this country. So we're doing a lot of work on police reform uh, and sort of thinking about maybe, you um, alternate responses uh, to, you know, non-emerge situations that, you know, maybe don't involve the police. So we're we're doing that. Uh, I work on housing. I work on transportation. I work on social security. Uh, I do a lot of work on uh, the supplemental nutrition assistance program, um, SNAP, or formerly known as food stamps. And I also work on the child nutrition program. So like school meals, Mm -hmm. Um, I work on immigration uh, and then I'm also, and Claire, I know you're familiar with this, uh, you know, I'm also a co-chair of the um, Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, Financial Security, and Poverty Task Force. Uh, we, we call that CCD, which is, you know, basically a coalition of disability organizations. And in that role, I, I work on, you know, ensuring that, um, you know, folks with disabilities, you know, have access to, uh, you know, mainstream financial services. So I do some banking stuff. Um, and then we also cover the poverty programs. Uh, as well. And and Claire, I know you, you co-chair the transportation task force. So we work collaboratively uh, through that space as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. ACB is a proud member of CCD. So if our uh, listeners who are members ever want to know about CCD uh, that's something we are, we really enjoy participating in. Great. Well, it sounds like you definitely have your hands in many, many pots, Cyrus. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, Just going back real quick to the, um, the, nine different programs. I'm curious, you said seven are, um, dependent on appropriations. What are the two that are constant?
0: Yeah, those would be the social security, uh, uh, program. So PABS, um, mm-hmm. which does a lot of work with, you know, ticket to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that one's not subject to, uh, annual appropriations, um, because it's, 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 uh, it's mandatory. It's mandatorily funded. And then the rep pay program where again, we oversee rep pays who, um, you know, or we we monitor basically provide oversight to uh, to that program again. Our paid program is is folks who sort of manage social security benefits for um, beneficiaries. So I would think of it as like any social security program that 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 we're overseeing is 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 uh, not subject to the annual appropriations process. That
1: makes sense, and I'm glad to hear that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, Cyrus. Because it is
2: 2020, and we can't escape discussing the COVID 19 pandemic. How has the pandemic provided opportunities and challenges um, to the policy and advocacy work
0: of NDRN? Yeah, that that is a great question, and I mean, before I even answer that, let me I mean, let me first say that you know, um, you know, this has been a, a very very difficult time, um, and you know, it's 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 been good, you know, I've been again honored to sort of work. Uh, to sort of try to alleviate uh, some of that pain, and especially the disproportionate impact it's been having on, on a lot of the communities that uh, that we serve. But, you know, I would say it's, it's prevented m- more challenges <laughs> than, than opportunities. I think the one that that comes to mind um, first, which I did not, uh, to be candid, not work on um, a ton, uh, since I don't cover health, but uh, we we worked on uh, the medical rationing issue. And so, so basically for folks that don't know, um, you know, many states sort of have these medical rationing plans, which essentially say that, you know, if hospitals sort of, you know, get to capacity, um, they can sort of start prioritizing care uh, based on like quality of life, as opposed to um, like individual medical assessments. And so how that's relevant to, to, to people with disabilities is that, you know, quality of life assessments are subjective, right? So what might be a good quality of life for one person, may be perceived differently by another person, and so uh, many of the PNAS, um, I think actually almost all of them, um, uh, filed a, at a minimum a complaint, uh, trying to get these medical rationing uh, plans, um, you know, basically tweaked um, or, or sort of uh, seriously amended, uh, and we were largely successful in that. I think up to the in, in by successful, I mean, you know, uh, to my knowledge, there has not been a single case of, of medical rationing um, during the pandemic, which I would, you know, say that the PNAs and NDRN played a huge role in that, including uh, a complaint filed with HHSOCR. And so there's more information on our website about that if, if you're curious. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, I think, again, I mean, COVID-19 has sort of just touched – Really, every policy area, and so I, maybe I'll just highlight a, f- a few of them. Um, you know, we had heard from the network, uh, the PNA network, that folks uh, were having some apprehension. Uh, folks who were on on SNAP again, food stamps, were having some apprehension about going to the grocery store, right, to to purchase groceries for fear that they, you know, could could be more susceptible to infection um, and you know potential death. Um, and they noticed that they couldn't use their uh, SNAP benefits to order groceries online, uh, like uh, many folks who are not on SNAP can do. Like, you know, I can order my groceries online, uh, so I don't have to go to the grocery store. Um, so there was, a little, there was a little program at USDA called the SNAP Online Purchasing Pilot Program. Uh, and basically, this program allows you to, um, you know, use your SNAP benefits online to order groceries. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was only a handful of states that it had this program. And, and we went to USDA and sort of made a statutory a statutory argument saying, look, the statute really says that this program should be expanded proactively nationwide. We think this is an opportunity, this is a perfect time to, to really get going on this. I mean, USDA time and time again, under um, this administration, uh, rejected that argument. Um, and it was a real battle. Um, and so, you know, You know, I I was not willing to accept that uh, and nor were other folks I was working with on this issue. And so what we did was we sort of did like a uh, sort of a nationwide almost like letter writing campaign where we really urged uh, the individual PNAs and other uh, organizations, state affiliates to write to their state officials saying, you know, um, you know, you know, please urge your state officials to uh, apply for this program is basically what USDA had said was, oh, well, the states are the ones that need to initiate the process. Again, we, we had a very different interpretation of the statute. We thought it could have been done practically, but that didn't resonate with them. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, now the program has been expanded almost nationwide. I think, don't quote me, but I think all but three states um, now have it. And I, I would really say that the PNAs and, and, and many of uh, our, our you know, ally organizations played a huge role in getting that program expanded. So now people can, you know, order their groceries, um, you know, if they're on snap with, you know, peace of mind that they don't have to put their lives at risk um, by going to the grocery store. So I think that was a big victory. Um, I, I think some places where we're, we we're, we're, facing some difficulty, um, you know, the transportation space, particularly with the airlines. Um, so we have really been pushing for a federal mask mandate, which sort of seems counterintuitive, right? I mean, but, but the, the reason is that um, currently uh, the government, the federal government has issued guidance to the airlines, which has basically said that, you know, we recommend that you implement a mask mandate for your passengers and you should be making, uh, exemptions for people with disabilities or people with with, with medical uh, conditions who cannot wear a mask. And you should be doing that in accordance with the Air Carrier Access Act, which is basically like the ADA for, for, for the airlines. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is guidance, so it's not binding. And so what have the airlines done? Well, the airlines have not been following the guidance. And my evidence for that is the fact that many of them have instituted what are called no mask, no fly uh, policies, which means that if you are not wearing a mask, you cannot, we will not provide you travel no matter what. There is no individualized assessment about your disability or your medical condition that, you know, may not permit you to wear a mask. And so we think this is a huge violation of the Air Care Access Act um, and, and, a, and a big problem. And so, um, you know, we actually had a situation in Alaska uh, brought to our attention by the Alaska PNA where an individual with a complex medical condition uh, needed to travel, um, uh, for for a follow up um, and for an organ transplant and could not wear a mask because of disability and uh, the airline refused to uh, provide them travel um, again we think in violation of the Air Care Access Act so so we're we you know we we're, we're looking for a federal mask mandate that also says that there should be uh, you know exemptions made for folks with disabilities uh, and other medical conditions um, in accordance with applicable federal civil rights law uh you know more specifically the air carrier access act and, and if i could just say you know i want to be really clear here um there have been these allegations that you know we are uh, you know ndrn is pushing for a blanket exemption or that we're supporting these you know doj ada exemption mask cards which is misinformation and, and totally bogus i mean these cards are, to- are totally fraudulent um so i just want to you know be very clear that we are not pushing for a for a blanket exemption what we're pushing for is individualized assessments in accordance with the air carrier access act and so if an individualized assessment is made and the determination is that the individual you know should not be provided an exemption then that's that's perfectly fine with us but currently that's that's really not being that's not really it's not really being done
1: great well thank you cyrus i know i have learned a lot today about what uh ndrn is doing and the different policies and what covid has done um so thank you so much for all of the work that um, the public policy team at NDRN is doing, and just the greater team at NDRN is doing. Um, and I think you really helped our listeners understand what what you guys are all about. So thank you again. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners, um, just hold on for a second, and we'll be back with our next guest who works um, at one of the state-specific PNA offices.
0: Introducing Sunday Edition with Anthony.
2: A weekly magazine show featuring the movers and shakers of our beloved organization topics and news that affect us all some great roundtable discussions and of course a lot of fun so join me every Sunday at 1 p.m. on ACB radio mainstream for Sunday edition
1: This is Cindy Van Winkle, Membership Services Coordinator. If you are not already part of the ACB family, you can join us by going to acb.org or call us at 612-332-3242 and we'll help you join our community. Well, we are back for the second guest we have on our show today. I'm really excited. We just spoke with Cyrus, who works at the uh, NDRN at the national level, but we're really fortunate to have someone who works in one of the state PNAs um, to give us, well, the boots on the ground perspective of what it. Is like to work at one of the state PNA offices, um, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I always feel like people are better than that than I am. So, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself and tell our listeners what state you're from?
3: Sure, Claire. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tom Krishan. I'm the legal director for Indiana Disability Rights, which is the protection and advocacy system for the state of Indiana.
1: Great. Perfect. Um, so we learned kind of a bit about what um, NDRN does, and then what the different program programs are that trickle down. Can you tell us, you know, a little bit about what um, you kind of said already? What your title bit was, but what work do you specifically do? What does a day in the life of Tom look like at the the PNA?
3: Sure, it's, it's it's varied. I can tell you that. Uh, I'm
1: sure. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so as legal director, I primarily um, direct and supervise all of our litigation and policy activities. So. Um, I oversee our investigations coordinator, our advocate supervisor, our intake staff, um, and also our legal staff, which is broken up and oversees uh, five particular practice groups or teams. So um, as an organization, we're split into these kind of practice areas and, um, and focus on those. Uh, those being the first one is uh, the abuse, neglect, and discharge team, um, which works to do investigations of allegations of abuse and neglect, uh, advocacy, and, and discharge planning and delay discharge uh, we have a civil rights team, which is kind of a bit of a catch-all, but includes fair housing work, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, Title II and Title III allegations, some constitutional work. Uh, our third team is education and employment. Um, they work on special education matters, um, Title I, ADA, employment discrimination cases, vocational rehabilitation of advocacy and appeals. Uh, we have a healthcare team, um, which does healthcare-related discrimination, also uh, Medicaid waiver denials and appeals. And then our final team is uh, self-determination. So guardianship defense, uh, guardianship termination, uh, supported decision-making agreements and advocacy. Um, So as a whole, we kind of work on all of those disability rights related matters. Uh, Personally, kind of in my supervisory role, I'm involved in it all, um, though I do have a particular interest in ADA and fair housing. So um, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I I have the luxury of kind of picking and choosing my level of involvement in any given case. Um, So, you know, my day to day involves you know advising and helping with those individuals and my staff on, on those different matters. Um, though I do have kind of a, a, my own caseload um, of particular cases that I'm currently working on.
2: And Tom, talk with us a little bit more about that day to day. So in in Indiana, if a resident or a consumer organization was to contact IDR, the PNA, mm-hmm. uh, on an issue related to a perceived violation of their rights under the ADA or uh, the Fair Housing Act and housing discrimination. What what would that process look like, and what would somebody, what would a resident or a consumer organization, what would their interactions be like with the PNA?
3: Yeah. So the nice thing about PNAs is we we have a spectrum of offering mm. you know services that we can offer. Um, that first kind of contact, uh, that individual having uh, and experiencing an issue. Uh, would contact the agency and we have some dedicated intake and referral staff um, who would uh, assist them. And if referrals are necessary, provide referrals, if it's something that uh, we can handle, then they uh, obtain the necessary information. Um, We have a weekly case review committee meeting that uh, reviews those intakes and determines if it's something that we can kind of move forward and offer advocacy representation for. Um, So we do that uh, weekly. Um, We open new cases, uh, assign them to uh, pertinent attorneys and advocates, and then we kind of move forward. Um, You know, our day-to-day involvement can be anywhere from kind of fact-finding a situation, determining if there are rights violations, uh, informal advocacy with the, um, the, the individual involved, Uh, It can lead all the way up to, you know, federal litigation and class action lawsuits if necessary. So, um, you know, day to day, it really depends on the situation. Um, You know, disability rights is a very broad area of practice. So, you know, my day to day and, you know, for instance, the federal litigation that I'm currently involved with varies from, um, you know, I'm involved with monitoring a Department of Corrections lawsuit and settlement uh, that involved offenders with seriously mental illness uh, being housed in segregation, all the way to an accessible website and effective communication case against our Family and Social Services Administration, uh, to voting cases, to um, an arrest and a jailing of an individual with a developmental disability, uh, and mental health diagnosis where we don't think appropriate reasonable accommodations were um, provided. So, you know, it's it's very varied, um, and there's not a typical day-to-day Um, But that's kind of the process. If somebody were to contact us, you know, we'd assess it, uh, see what services we can provide. And and depending on how uh, the situation has developed, kind of where we go from there.
1: So, Tom, you talked about quite a few different um, topic areas that are really interesting. It must keep you uh, very um, engaged going from one topic to the other. Do you guys tend to see any particular trends, you know, in 2020 or before that are going on in Indiana? I know in the greater disability rights community, we see certain trends that bleed through, you know, COVID has definitely impacted life. Are there any trends that are specific to Indiana that you guys have been dealing with?
3: Yeah, I think I think always, uh, every year, and especially 2020, I think, you know, there's the standard um, problems that we we see and try to combat that being, you know, accessible and reliable transportation, access to healthcare and education and employment, uh, you know, affordable and accessible housing. I mean, those are kind of always there, um, but always, um, you know, kind of worsened with a pandemic, obviously. Um, you know, right now, a really big area in Indiana is a staffing shortage. Um, and it's a shortage of staff that can work uh, for and in, in, um, on behalf of people with disabilities. So um, direct care staff, Um, You know, people uh, work, nursing staff working in Congress settings, you know, it it was bad before the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we think the pandemic's kind of, you know, exasperated it a little bit. Um, But it's especially, uh, it's especially important situation um, because it can create a, um, it can create in in a situation where an individual who does not have uh, adequate staffing, say for a community-based setting that they risk being institutionalized and, and we've seen how COVID can impact Congress settings more than anywhere. Um, mm. so, you know, that staffing shortage, uh, can, you know, unfortunately result in more people being institutionalized where they could absolutely, um, live and thrive in the community-based setting. So, um, that, that's kind of a, a big issue that we're trying to combat now. Um, unfortunately in Indiana we had, um, a, a um, service provider in Northern Indiana kind of say, hey, we can no longer staff these 40 individuals anymore. And there was kind of a rush to find appropriate settings for those 40 individuals. And you know, we're concerned that may happen more uh, given the <laughs> pandemic.
2: What sort of relationship does IDR have with other PNAs? Uh, so Cyrus is telling us that there are 57 PNAs in total. So it Is there coordination and communication efforts that happen at the PNA level when working through these issue areas?
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, NDRN, the International Disability Rights Network, I think does a great job of kind of coordinating those efforts. Um, You know, depending on the PNA, IER has you know good relationships, obviously with our kind of neighboring PNAs, but there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Um, we're all dealing with very similar situations, obviously state law and, uh, state administrations may impact and change the situation slightly, but, you know, if another PNA has dealt with a specific situation, then it's good to get their take on what worked, uh, what hasn't worked, how they're combating it. Um, so, you know, from my standpoint, for instance, there's a regular legal director's call where we can, uh, hop on the phone with the other legal directors and other PNAs. Um, I know there's a a CEO call where the executive directors can do the same. Uh, There's a number of listservs that uh, individuals can bounce ideas off of each other. Um, And I think most PNAs are pretty receptive to you just kind of picking up the phone call or the phone and, and calling them or emailing them and just saying, Hey, you know, we see you're dealing with this or working in this area. You know, we're, we're seeing similar situations here. You know, what, what have you done and what's worked and what hasn't worked. So I think there's a really good relationship amongst the PNAs nationally um, and, and that helps, I think that helps us provide the best service we can for, for our constituents.
2: That's great. I know that's similar to, Claire, the conversations that our affiliates and uh, affiliate presidents have when they're trying to work through either advocacy issues or affiliate management issues. So it seems like you all have a pretty similar structure and the same level of coordination and communication.
3: Yeah. I don't, I don't think it benefits anybody to kind of just kind of live in your own little Island. Um, you know, we're, we're all, we all work under similar funds and similar grants. Uh, we're all providing similar services. Obviously some of these state by state issues may may vary, um, but it's always important to kind of reach out and see what those other agencies and what other organizations are doing. And that, that, that really expands beyond the PNAs though. Um, you know, there are such great national and state disability advocacy organizations, you know, obviously like the ACB. Um, and it's good to reach out, you know, to those organizations as well to see what they're working on and if if we can help each other that way.
1: So Tom, I always love to ask people in the disability rights community, the legal world or the advocacy world, how they got into this area, because it's kind of a, an interesting niche area. So do you mind if I ask what got you interested in this area?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So It's kind of been a little bit of a roundabout way, but, you know, I've long had an interest in employee rights and employment discrimination. Um, Mm. So during law school, I I had the option of completing kind of a specialized program for labor and employment law. Um, Mm. And through that work, uh, while in law school, I worked uh, for the civil rights section of the state's attorney general. Um, You know, I had an opportunity to kind of work on some employment discrimination cases there, uh, be exposed to some fair housing situations. Um, and for, so, after graduating from law school, having that experience in that interest area, um, I think the, the P and A system was just a perfect fit. Um, and they were hiring for a staff attorney. Um, fortunately, they gave it to me, <laughs> and so I <I've> had <laughs> an area, you know, an opportunity to kind of expand and work in those particular areas, expand my interest uh, in working for on behalf of people with disabilities. And I think it was a great, uh, a great decision back
2: then. Mm, that's great. And Tom, you mentioned the coordination not only within the PNA network, but also with the cross disability community. Um, you all had a a press release last week on the International Day of People with Disabilities, um, talking about work with the the cross disability community. Can you tell us about that that announcement?
3: Sure. Yeah. We, so we filed a lawsuit.
2: Um, it was
3: the uh, Indiana Disability Rights is working with the disability rights advocates organization uh, to represent uh, three Hoosier voters with vision disabilities uh, and two disability advocacy groups. One being kind of our group, which is the Indiana Protection and Advocacy Services Commission, and then the American Council of the Blind of Indiana, which is obviously one of your local affiliates. Um, We filed a federal lawsuit against the Indiana Election Commission and the state secretary of state, uh, alleging they're maintaining a voting system that kind of remains inaccessible to people with disabilities. Um, Specifically, we're alleging that they are not providing uh, necessary accommodations that would allow people with disabilities equal access to the voting process uh, and also not allowing uh, individual voters independent and private voting um, access. So, You know, generally, when a state offers a program um, here, a voting program, uh, they need to ensure that everyone has equal access, including people with disabilities. And, you know, we're alleging that they're not doing that here with regard to the absentee vote by mail program in Indiana.
1: I think this particular case Mm -hmm. is really important and exciting because it's taking place after the 2020 general election. Um, I think there was a lot of work done before the election, which was so important, don't get me wrong. But I think this is a great example of the fact that we're going to keep fighting, you know, just because the 2020 general election is over. That does not mean these issues are gone. Um, so I think it's really impressive and exciting to see the work you guys are doing that we're going to keep fighting because there's another, you know, elections next year and the year after and on and on and on. So it's pretty exciting to see that, you know, the the fighting is not stopping, that we're going to continue to push.
3: Absolutely. And, and well, I would say that the the COVID-19 pandemic certainly maybe exasperated this issue, uh, this is not a pandemic issue. This is a, you know, a federal civil rights access to the voting process issue. Um, you know, we, we all know how important voting is. You know, it's the, kind of the bedrock of democracy, right? Um, and if if people don't have equal access to that, that process, um, that's an important right that's being infringed upon. So uh, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. You know, I think we saw a lot of pre-election um, voting lawsuits. Um, in fact, we were locally, we were involved with um, an, an amicus brief. Um, in a lawsuit that was trying to expand kind of the vote by mail uh, to everyone. Um, We, we joined with a few, you know, talking about um, some collaborations. We joined with a few other uh, local and disability rights organizations um, to kind of represent the interests and the viewpoints of both voters with disabilities along with those individuals who live with and work with voters with disabilities um, and, and, the, the risk that they were encountering by requiring in-person voting, um, so that was kind of a pre-election matter. Um, but now we're focused on kind of the post-election, um, having heard from uh, experiences and the barriers that this system has placed on individual voters. Um, you know, we can really highlight those and 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 advocate for change. To as you mentioned, Claire, to ensure that the next election is accessible to everybody and everybody has that right.
2: And Tom, as Claire mentioned, uh, there have been other cases filed this year. Certainly ACB has been involved with cases in, in several other states, along with uh, disability rights advocates, who's co-counsel in this case, and PNAs from other states as well. Um, have the have those proceedings um do those make you optimistic for what you are hoping to accomplish on behalf of the Hoosiers and voters with disabilities in Indiana?
3: Very much so. Um, yeah. So I think that the, the particular the cases brought by, you know, disability rights advocates and some of the other PNAs uh, and some other um, um, national organizations, uh, specifically with regard to accessible absentee system. Um, you know, they, they've seen victories in other States um, we, we have a similar, similarly inaccessible system here. Although I would, uh, venture to say that we probably have, Indiana has one of the most restrictive systems, um, uh, in, in the country, um, but they've seen, um, successes. And I think that we will see hopefully some success here as well. Um, you know, stepping back from a lot of the voting litigation that was kind of, you know, surrounded around COVID and the health risks about going in person to voting, you know, this lawsuit is, is you know, it happens every election. Um, it's not pandemic related. Yeah, certainly, yes. In Indiana, um, you know, we saw, I think, three times the amount of people vote absentee in this election, this general election, than, than in 2016. Yes, absolutely. That puts a, a brighter light on the issue. Um, however, the, you know, Indiana, just from a little background, Indiana has um, a vote by mail program, absentee program, but they only allow 13 specific categories to participate in that program. Um, voters with disabilities is one of those categories. So, voters with disabilities already should be able to participate in the absentee ballot system. Um, but when they offer a standard size print based absentee voting system, um, they are they are having and, and maintaining a program that is simply inaccessible to many people. Um, and to take a step further, the state law states that if you are unable to independently complete your own absentee ballot, you have to have a traveling board come to your house and complete the ballot for you. Um, so it's forcing people, especially with vision disabilities, to forfeit their right to that private, and independent ballot. So, you know, I, I mentioned this is one of the most restrictive, you know, absentee systems in the country. So, seeing those successes in the other states uh, by DRA and the other PNAs um, with their inaccessible systems, you know, we we think it's it, Indiana is maintaining an even more restrictive and more inaccessible system. And you know, we're 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 optimistic uh, seeing those federal decisions. Um, that hopefully we'll see some good decisions um, in this lawsuit.
1: So, taking a step back, kind of to the very beginning, Tom, um, it's been so helpful to talk to somebody from a state PNA because I must admit that when people call our office as the advocacy and outreach specialist, I'm continuously referring people to their state PNAs because you guys do phenomenal work and you're a great resource. Um, so, can you just briefly talk about? You know what services or issues people can call you guys about. How you guys can help. How people can get a hold of you. You know, obviously you're the for those who are in Indiana, but maybe some idea for other states. Just what you know, if if people call, how what offer what can you guys offer, and um, how can they get a hold of you guys?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of a, a little you know background overview. Um, you know, PNA is the the only legally based advocacy organization um, that Congress established. Um, so, you know, for, to to protect the rights of individuals with disabilities. So, um, if it's a disability rights related issue, um, then PNAs will be able to provide some advocacy. Um, there are a number of grants that uh, we all work under. Um, you know, it, the, the, the particular programs may vary state to state, but generally speaking, we we all have um, most of the same grants. A lot of those grants are person specific, and a lot of them are subject or issue specific. So uh, for instance, we have a, uh, a protection advocacy for persons with developmental disabilities program. So uh, if an individual with developmental disability is encountering a disability rights issue, we have a particular fund that um, provides funding for us to provide advocacy in that situation. Uh, we have one for individuals with mental illness. Um, we have one with individuals for traumatic brain injury, uh, beneficiaries of social security, individuals who utilize the representative uh, payee program. Um, We have a client assistance program that if um, an individual is receiving services under the Rehabilitation Act, so uh, for instance, the vocational rehabilitation program, uh, we provide advocacy in those situations. And then some of the issue specifics, you know, we have one for assistive technology only. So if an individual um, needs assist technology devices or services. So say a motorized wheelchair or talking computer or adaptive computer software, uh, we can work through and provide advocacy through say case management, legal representation, advocating for say a waiver program to fund those. Uh, and then we also have one for voting access. So, you know, we have programs that cover, like I mentioned, almost every disability rights related issue. Um, and if they encounter that issue, if they think they've, uh, say they 've been discriminated against or they need help with a vocational rehabilitation denial um, they contact the local p a uh, usually the p a will you know obtain that information uh, and then make a determination if they can provide those services and then um, they move from there and, and I mentioned earlier, you know we have a wide spectrum um, you know we try to work things out in the least intrusive manner you know we try to contact the adversary and and, and do some informal advocacy and see if we can come to, um, you know, an agreement, you know, for the individual working with uh, and, and accomplish their goal. But if that fails, then we can kind of move from there. If it, if it does move to having to file, say, an administrative appeal or state litigation, then we can. As I mentioned, you know, with the voting lawsuit, if it takes um, filing federal litigation, you know, we absolutely can do that as well. So, um, you know, the level of services uh, certainly depends on the individual's uh, situation. Um, I will note, obviously, we're we're federally funded, and we do have limited resources, so we can't say yes to every single call we get, unfortunately. Um, but you know, the first step is for that individual to contact their local PNA um, and say, "Hey, this is my issue. Um, is this something you can help with?" And um, you know, that that's the first good step. Um, if it's technical assistance, they can provide it. If it's legal representation, then and we have that option as well.
2: And Tom, and I was, oh. What is the best way to contact uh, or find contact information for a state PA? Is it uh, by contacting you all by phone? Where would they find that number? Is it Googling their state and PA or checking the NDRN website? What would you recommend for individuals to do?
3: Yeah, so if they're looking for their specific state's PA, Um, and they don't know what that is, then I think the National Disability Rights Network's website is a good first start. Um, They could also just Google, you know, your state uh, and protection and advocacy. And I think that would probably um, find the specific organization for your state. Um, You know, here in Indiana, we, you know, we, we can take it all. So for instance, um, we have two excellent dedicated intake and referral staff people. Um, they take phone calls. They take mailing letters. They take uh, electronic communication. Uh, we have an, an electronic intake form on our website. Um, you know, there's a v- varied way uh, to contact us and to let us know that you have an issue. Um, and and, and we're, we're trying to be as accommodating as we can for um, those individuals who need to contact us, and and I think this is probably true for most PNAs as well. But uh, if you're if you're not sure what your protection advocacy organization is in in your state, I think NDRN's website's a good one. Uh, and like I said, if you just Google, uh, you know your your state's name and protection and advocacy, I'm pretty confident um, your your state
1: specific one will, will come up. And to our listeners, if you guys ever have any issues finding that information, just give a call to the national office at ACB. We'd be happy to help find that. And eventually, not now, not as of December 2020, but eventually ACB is going to put on their website um, contact information for the PNAs for each state. So that should be easily obtainable eventually, not today. But we, we understand that's an important thing and we're going to to promote that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I know I've learned a lot and I really enjoyed hearing about the work you guys are doing in Indiana and across the country. Um, so thank you so much for taking time out of a busy time, especially as the holiday season is coming up. And thanks for, um, thanks for thanks for all your hard work, especially on the voting rights case.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And if I could maybe give a state-specific plug, if, if any of the listeners are in Indiana, um, you know, you can reach us at our toll-free number, which is um 622 4845 And our email address is info at Indiana Disability Rights.org. So, you know, we'd be happy to uh, provide any assistance we can on issues in Indiana. Um, and if it's not an Indiana issue, we'll be happy to refer to a a, a neighboring PA. But um no, very, very much thanks for having me and I'm happy to uh um, talk with you today.
1: Great, thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, hold on for a minute and Clark and I will be back to close out the show. Hey everybody, this is Claire again. I hope you guys enjoyed our two guests. I know I really enjoyed hearing about all the work that the two offices are doing, really getting deep in the weeds of issues impacting the disability community. So, uh, round of applause for all the work that the two entities are doing. Um, and it was really great just to get to know Cyrus and Tom a little bit.
2: So Claire, what did you enjoy the most? Or what what was your main takeaway from the conversation with Cyrus about the work of National Disability Rights Network?
1: Um, I really just enjoy hearing kind of the getting into the weeds of the policy work that NDRN is doing, and Cyrus specifically, um, are doing, you know, right there in Washington, D.C. I say right there, where we're right there. But you know what I mean? <laughs> um, the policies In the that, heart of uh, it all. In the heart of it all, um, especially with the new administration starting up in, gosh, just over a month. So it's exciting to hear that um, they're working hard to promote and advocate for policies that we'll see hopefully within Congress and the new administration.
2: And certainly, we are fortunate to consider NDRN a collaborator, um, a, a partner for ACB, the national organization. Uh, but it was also interesting hearing about their structure. NDRN, kind of as the umbrella or trade association for the PNAs, and the PNAs pretty similar to the uh, state level, uh, state and local level affiliates and chapters that we have within ECB.
1: Very similar. Yeah, exactly. So I hope that's encouraging for our state affiliates um, and special interest affiliates to hear that you can have some allies right there at your own local level um, to, to go to and seek out when you need assistance because there's some great resources.
2: And again, a great conversation with Tom Krishan. Nailed it. Nailed it. Indiana <laughs> Disability Rights, or IDR, giving us that local or state-level perspective on the work uh, that the PNAs do, how they operate, uh, what happens when individuals or organizations reach out to them with issues. Just like any other uh, organization, they are a little bit resource-constrained on the caseload. Not that we would know anything about that. Not at all. (laughs) They really they really maximize their efforts. And we have seen that across the nation this year, whether it's in the the healthcare space, education, uh, probably more so than any other uh, when it comes to voting rights and accessible voting. Yes.
1: That's also really interesting to just hear a little bit about what uh, state-specific or local, you know, geographic-specific issues each area region faces? Because I think it's easy for us to get stuck in our own little bubble. For us, especially here in the D.C. area, but I'm sure everybody, you know, you live in your community. Um, but even though we have overall sweeping issues that face all that all Americans face, we also have geographic-based issues. So it's really exciting to hear that each entity can really get down into the mud, so to speak, and address the issues that each region is facing.
2: Well, Claire, as we wrap up this podcast um, and our conversation, getting to know the National Disability Rights Network and the network of protection and advocacy organizations around the country, is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners anything at all this is airing <laughs> on thursday december 10th
1: i think that was a little nudge there clark <laughs>
2: nudge off a cliff yeah, just yeah. Little one.
1: um yeah so everybody i'm sad to say that This is my last week as an ACB employee, and I say employee because I promise I'm not going anywhere. I'm still a proud ACB member, Um, but I'm actually going to start next Monday, December 14th as a public policy analyst for the National Disability Rights Network, NDRN. Um, So I'm putting on a different hat to go work at NDRN, but we'll still be working on so many of the same issues. So, um, you know, if you need anything from NDRN, you now know somebody inside.
2: And certainly this is not goodbye, but this is see you later. This is uh, hear you on our committee calls <laughs> and community events. And geez, I'll probably see you sooner than others. But certainly when we have in-person conventions again, we all know that you will be there as a proud ACB member. So, Claire, I just want to say thank you. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and working with you. Um, over nearly the past two years, um, certainly appreciate your passion and dedication to ACB and our members. And I know that um, your passion for disability rights and access will serve you well at NDRN, and it will also serve our members well to have yes. such a, a a great force for good um, branching out from ACB into the broader world.
1: Well, thank you, Clark. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to bring the voice of the blind and visually impaired community to yet another entity. So uh, remember, guys, I'm here to advocate for our our community. Um, And yeah, again, you're not getting rid of me. Who knows, maybe even I'll sneak back onto the podcast somehow. So thanks again to everybody for listening to our podcast today. Again, if you have any issues, you can always reach out to ACB at advocacy at acb.org. I'm not answering them anymore. So go ahead and flood Clark with all the messages you want.
2: (laughs) And Claire, one more time for the road. What do we always say?
1: Keep advocating. Get up, get up, get up, get up.